moral of the story is Fredo. Goddamn Fredo ruins everything. Haven't you seen The Godfather? I don't get it. This is I Don't Get It, a podcast about performance in Edmonton. And we are proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. We had a busy couple weeks, Fonda. Yeah, it was it was a super busy week, but so much, so much great things. Great. So I, I have no grammar this morning. No, so no. much great things. What kind of sentence is that? Oh it's my an, god, it's an accurate sentence. We had so much great things. English degree uh, over here. Oi. Um, yeah. Well, we started out the week uh, real strong with Toronto Dance Theater, mm-hmm. a presentation by the Brian Webb Dance Company. Toronto Dance Theater is celebrating its fiftieth anniversary this year. Boom. Which is crazy for a contemporary dance company in Canada. Yeah, that's pretty wild. That's a long time ago. A long time before I was born. They were were doing things on the scene. They were doing the stuff. And um, and so they're touring a package called House Mix, which is a sort of series of greatest hits by their um, resident choreographer and artistic director, Christopher House, who's been with that company for over 20 years. Great. So it was uh, it was five pieces, I guess technically six, but sort of like five program pieces, and one was sort of a, a split. Um, what were your what were your impressions, Fonda? What were some initial impressions with what we saw? Um, well, I, I appreciated the sort of the breadth of um, range in the pieces. There, they they do range that that twenty years really mm-hmm. um, from seeing Venicava, which was created in 1998, mm-hmm. um, and one of his, um, House's most well known uh, pieces that has been you know revived a number of right. times. It was like the the show closer, and mm-hmm. I think with I think with good reason. But we'll get there. Yeah, yeah, um, and. Then and then uh, started out with Martingales, one of the newest pieces um, that uh, in House's repertoire. And so um, I wanted to ask you first a little bit about Martingales because it was quite um, uh, that you know they started out just sort of throwing these uh, like balls between each other in the, right. in the company. So the the curtain comes up and there's twelve dancers sort of uh, along the perimeter of the stage and some lights and uh, like a like a DJ or a sound sound person with a laptop. Um, and then sort of four of them take to the middle of the, the, the stage and they start sort of lobbing this, this ball back and forth, like these really high arcs. Um, and it doesn't feel choreographed necessarily, that, that element of it. There's sort of that element of danger of like, right, it's a, it's a ball. And they're just like hucking it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're dancers. Can they catch? I don't know. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. And so then, you know, more people start to like fade away and come back. And then it sort of more and more people engage with the game. Uh, until uh, everyone's moving. And there were a couple different beats. There was a couple different sort of games within that. There was the ball one, which came back. Uh, but there mm-hmm. was also this sort of like dancing together, like two people would sort of link up and then sort of run run backwards and forwards uh, with their with their hands connected uh, until someone would cut in or they would, they would peel apart. Um, so, yeah, it, it felt like to me, um, like the, it was the sort of piece that I think at this point I've seen some similar shows where mm-hmm. it's that sort of like game theory and practice. Yeah, um, yeah, where they kind of like start building on like a rule that they've sort of, you know, mutually agreed on. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the rules are always set and the same first or if they're creating them in real time. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of interesting to try and figure out what the rule is in each given point. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, and it was interesting to see one with so many people. I've never seen, I've never seen that before where sort of 12 people are engaged in this game. Uh, yeah, it sort of feels like 
watching hockey, but you don't know the rules, and so mm-hmm. you're just trying to like glean it from 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 the performance itself or, or the the scene. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but and then sort of the the last beat of it, these these balls are getting lobbed higher, higher in the air, and every time someone misses it. They sit down. Yeah, uh, and the, the performance slowly comes to a close as these balls each mm-hmm. sort of get dropped. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and I noted it in the program. So a martingale, which the piece is called, is a system in game theory in which no amount of knowledge of past outcomes will help predict a future outcome. Right. So, yeah, just, I mean, watching, I didn't read that before we saw the piece, mm-hmm. but then as soon as I read it, I kind of thought, oh, that's what, okay. Yeah. I wonder if the dancers, as they're doing this too, or keep track of the winners, like if they have a bracket in that game of like, <laughs> oh, yeah, my, I've won three three out of our eight performances. Right, um, yeah. Things like that. Yeah, that, so um, that was Martin Gale. The second piece, I think, was one of the most kind of, it, it was like classically really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Fjeld, uh, or an excerpt of an excerpt from a larger piece called Fjeld. So there's two parts to this one. Um, one was a duet between um, two female dancers, and then the second part, the clincher, I thought was the the trio of three male dancers right after um, following that, and just like really, really resonant um, kind of give and take with. Uh, um, body weight and and things like that there yeah. and it's just like the contact that the dancers had with each other in particular the the male trio mm-hmm. um was just like really stunningly beautiful they looked like they were out of sort of like a grecian classical painting yeah yeah mm-hmm. to me it felt like a, a renaissance yeah painting come alive came alive the soundtrack was sort of like monk monkish hymn mm-hmm. uh, i guess which really gave it that element the first part was sort of like Felt like uh, it was sort of the the costumes felt sort of Grecian in that way. Yeah, they're in these like long flowing white mm-hmm. dresses, and it felt like sort of like a, a dance version of having a conversation or an argument. Sort of there were these like communications that would happen, and they would walk over to this side of the stage and that side of the stage, and one would do a gesture, another would do a gesture, and sort of that sort of um, dynamic, I guess. But yeah, the third one was this sort of unity of of purpose, maybe a little more. Um, with these these connections and these bends and yeah this really beautiful slow movement mm-hmm. yeah the the female the duet with the two female dancers um, I felt like and it, it comes back later too but the use of costume to kind of like inform the movement mm-hmm. um, the 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 duet had these like incredible rocking moments where you know they would um, kind of kick legs forward and then kick legs back and what it would it would like fan the whole skirt out within mm-hmm. a single sort of motion and to ha- see them seeing them do that together with these like flowing dresses it just kind of really made you feel like you were sort of like being like rocking or swept along with them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. totally so that was really nice um and yeah the uh the the trio of of men i think that i've when christopher house and toronto dance theater came a, a few years ago um mm-hmm. there was another piece that we saw called 11 accords it also had a really standout piece with three um males in it and um, I think that this was probably the piece from Fjeld, which is older, um, probably really informed some of the work that uh, House did in the future. Right. And so, you know, to see this kind of like maybe one of the first times that that dynamic was uh, tested out, that was uh, it was really good. It was definitely one of the sort of most stunning moments mm-hmm. physically in the show. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting in a show like this, literally called House Mix, where it is sort of a retrospective jumping around um, uh, his career and his choreography and his his art 
the variety was was fascinating, and mm-hmm. and that was a yeah a really uh, interesting and nuanced part of that. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, oh, another thing that Christopher House really loves. What's that? Running backwards. Yes, yes. <laughs> And these dancers, when they're running, they are sprinting. Like mm-hmm. the, the movement is fast. This uh, other piece now called Thirteen. Um, it was, uh, yeah. It, it, there was there was a lot of running backwards, actually, in all of the pieces in Martin Gale's too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. This one. Uh, this was maybe the one that didn't resonate uh, for me as much. It felt uh, I couldn't pin down the 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 feeling or the the sentiment. It was it was going for in sort of this like play everyone it had a another group of dancers they were all in sort of like u- ubiquitous red sort of garb mm-hmm. um uh yeah it felt like a like a dance version of a google meeting to me i don't know <laughs> that was the vibe i don't i don't know how to quantify it other than that but it was sort of like these like copies and these little games would pop up between the, between the dancers and these sort of ripples of a movement or an idea mm-hmm. um but yeah, yeah, it was a, uh, and the soundtrack was maybe a little more like digital blippy, uh, mm-hmm. which maybe gave it that maybe where I'm drawing Google from in this. Yeah, this but. one had the live DJ on stage, Tom mm-hmm. Gill, um, and I, I I would agree that I think that this piece was the one that I don't I didn't get as much out of, mm-hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I mean it's still kind of interesting. When we saw Toronto Dance Theater a few years ago, Trent Wilkie, who was in. Um, guest reviewing on that episode he said that it was kind of like watching people in a fishbowl oh okay. um mm. or like you know so there's a sort of setting and you're just kind of like watching the environment change and these people kind of like dart around but there's like mm. there's a school to it you know like there's there's sort of like a group mentality um so then there was an intermission mm. second half of the piece uh i or second half of the night was um started out with echo dark uh, which is uh, the newest piece, actually. Martin Gales was 2014. Echo Dark was 2015. So, what were your what were your impressions of Echo Dark? What what uh, stuck with you from from that work? Because uh, I know we've talked about it, and I know this was one I think for both of us that was really strong. Yeah, really strong. Um, come out with super percussive movement. Um, there, are, and it, we were kind of trying to figure out, you know, like how the what came first, you know, the costume or the choreography, mm-hmm. because they're wearing these sort of like really drapey army green skirts uh, both male and females in the company are wearing them like full length skirts like yeah. to, the, to the ankle yeah and army boots mm-hmm. so they're stomping around with these boots and they're you know kind of like doing cartwheels where their feet like slam flat on the floor and you, you know you ju- you're just hearing what they're doing almost more than you're really seeing it because you can't really see their legs with this huge costume on yeah this was really interesting because all the other pieces had been sort of barefoot or or had not drawn attention to to the feet in the same way and suddenly, yeah, it was there was a choreography of sound as well, and the fabric, the sound of the fabric swooping as they would kick, and that it was sort of thick, heavy fabric. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it was from the audience. Yeah, I couldn't really tell what it was, but it made this like great smacking sound when they mm-hmm. would do a fast spin, or they would, you know, like kind of throw their legs over to one side. You could really, really hear the snap of this fabric, and you know, it sounded wet almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then uh, it also had a lot of stark lighting in this one, uh, very dramatic lighting in sort of the four, often in sort of uh, the four corners of the stage, so that made for really interesting tableaus and moments where the, you know, all the dancers would sort of hold a hold a pose, and then one would sort of swoop kick their way through, yeah, uh, and then the it light. would change, yeah, and then shift through. So yeah, it was a really interesting dynamic, both visually and uh, orally. Yeah, 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 the lighting in this piece was designed by Steve Lucas, and from what I 
remember for most of the piece, it was actually kind of looked just like a big X yeah, across yeah, yeah. the stage in the in the shins in the floor lights. Um, so yeah, it did it did create this really kind of interesting shadowy uh, thing, and the texture of these skirts also really came out with the light too. It would kind of like shudder through. Um, yeah, and so that one then contrasting that with the oldest piece, the you know ultimate Vinacava, mm-hmm. um, and we, we remember uh, Brian Webb in our previous episode talking about like how it's great that we can still see this this you know sort of like set one of the seminal pieces in Canadian contemporary dance, and it was very good um, from from someone who doesn't come from a dance background. It was just like a lot of powerful and beautiful movement with a very driving soundtrack that really gave it this um, this feeling of uh, of heightening the whole time through. It was sort of these runs of movement and dance, and uh, yeah, it just kept kept drawing me in more and more. Yeah, it was really, it felt really relentless. Mm-hmm. Um, the music is by Robert Morin, and it, it, it's, it, the only other piece I can really think that it reminded me of a bit was um, when we saw Paul Taylor Dance Company, the Esplanade. So Esplanade is, is an even older, um, but it kind of takes these, you know, like groups of people walking through an, like, you know, a city or, or whatever, mm-hmm. what have you. Um, yeah. And it's just and it also has that relentless pace, that feel where you're just kind of like watching more and more. And um, but this one, Vinicav is much more uh, uh, much faster pace. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And the movement is really dynamic. Like when you know you when you hear Brian Webb say he loves watching dancing, this was really like, yes, dancing. Right. I my favorite moments was a sort of like a divergence from that pattern of like very relentless movement and that there was a lot going on on the stage, but you sort of clued into the fact that um, there was just two dancers at sort of the the back of the stage doing a much slower movement together mm-hmm. um, that just sort of offset all of the, the fast relentlessness of, of a lot of the rest of the piece uh, that I loved. I loved just that contrast and found it so strong mm-hmm. uh, and just powerful to have that dynamic showing on stage for, for the, the time it took for them to sort of cross the stage and, and complete that that sequence. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess, you know, you've been doing this for a while now, Paul, sure. with, with dance stuff. Um, how did you feel about the kind of like the range that's been covered over the, over like a night like this, seeing like 20 years of choreography go by? Yeah, I feel like it, yeah, it gave some interesting snippets of both a choreographer's um, range like uh, and their their own fascinations, uh, and then also maybe uh, hints of sort of the influence that either this company had or that it absorbed over over the decades. Things that seemed similar to to things I'd seen, um, but maybe this was a piece that came before that, you know, or this was part of that conversation of oh, we're game theory is now a part of a dance. We're exploring that, or uh, or clothing in this case, or costuming. Uh, really playing an important element it was something I hadn't seen before uh, in in quite the same way it was used here, where it was used as like tactile sensation uh, delivery system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, what about you, Fonda? When you see a, a choreographer show like this, that's a retrospective over so long, what what stands out to you? Um, what I kind of really enjoy is that you really start getting a sense of knowing a choreographer. Mm. Like even from the show that we saw a few couple years ago, I think it was back in season two when we were doing our season two. Um, being able to pick out even from the opening seconds of Martin Gales, I was like, yes, I've seen his work before. Mm. You know, like you can you get the sense of um, uh, and also the company being able to see a company return and, you know, like 
because uh, we see, like, for example, Alberta Ballet all the time. You know, mm-hmm. we kind of know those dancers. To see um, Toronto Dance Theater, uh, you know, there's there's they have one soloist. She's got great bangs, um, you know, <laughs> just like, right. and, and you can really pick her out. You really remember her. Yeah, it was um, a very diverse company as well. Absolutely. Like, visually, just very diverse in, in body type, in, in age, in, in, in race. Like, all of these things was really interesting to see. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really great company to watch. And, I mean, yeah, we only really get them once every, you know, four or five years. So it was great. It was great that they were here. Cool. All Speaking right. of great that they're here, Fonda, uh, how about an ad? Woo, ads. Join APN on March 17th at the CKUA Radio Performance Hall for an evening of music and whimsy in celebration of Alberta-made podcasts. Music will be provided by Doug Hoyer, the man responsible for more Alberta podcast theme songs than anyone, and a performer of many fine tunes on his own, now with the accompaniment of a string quartet. The whimsy, uh, Doug will bring some for sure, but will also test contestants' knowledge of podcasting with Opod, the game. It will be silly and there will be prizes. Learn more at albertapodcastnetwork.com slash events and use the promo code APNROCKS to get $5 off your ticket. Okay. So also this week, I uh, got to go see another opera. Yeah, yeah. How was that, Fonda? Yeah. Um, actually, first time I've ever seen Mercury Opera, but mm-hmm. they've been um, operating in town for a number of years. Uh, saw La Traviata with our opera expert, Colleen Fian. Um, and we did a hot take right after the show. Great. So we're just going to throw to that right away. But I did want, because I, I forgot my program in the trunk while we were recording. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, I did want to point out that on the evening that we saw it, um, Violetta was played by a fantastic Kathleen Morrison, um, and Alfredo was played by Boris Darrow. Cool. Now let's get to that take. <laughs> Okay, so hello everyone. I am here with Colleen Fian, our resident opera expert. Hello. Um, and we've just seen Mercury Opera's production of La Traviata at Chez-Pierre. For those who don't know, Chez-Pierre is one of the oldest um, strip clubs in Edmonton. It's, it's a bit, it's got more character than many. Yes, I would say that it's definitely got more character than Diamonds or um, Eden on the north side. Don't ask me how I know that, but uh, it does. <laughs> so I think we can classify it as a little bit adorable. So tonight we, we attended La Traviata, which is a, um, a an opera by Verdi. It was done in his middle period, his classic middle period, uh, at the same time as Il Travatore and um, Rigoletto. Rigoletto. Uh, now Ros- Verdi is, is famous for being part of the bel canto period of opera. And, uh, what does bel canto mean? Like, what is that? Pardon me. It is part of the, the beautiful song part of opera. Um, so the opera was written in 1850. And at that time, opera was very popular in, in France. And uh, the point of the whole thing was to sort of, at this point, was to feature prominent um, celebrities in opera and, uh, and and to write beautiful music for them to sort of stand and sing. So it had become about the stars of opera and it was their solo moments. So it was really about like the kind of like marquee celebrity like, you know, people people on the, mar- like Maria Callas you were saying. Is like, exactly. This is this one, this role, La Traviata which is not actually the name of the principal character. Um, Violetta is the name of... Uh, her but um yeah i mean that so these are 
this is one of the roles that like made people essentially exactly so if we look at sort of like modern day uh, movies or theater like current cinema is very much based uh, based on um, on stars and so the bel canto a uh, version at of least opera. economically at least economically. at least economically <laughs> totally so tonight um so going to see la traviata tonight it's a bel canto opera which was sort of the 18th uh sorry the 1800s this was a big this was a big version of opera and um uh and so you go and it's an opera about a about a courtesan or a a call girl, in essence, um, who charms uh, an actual loving suitor. And so going to see it, at, see it at Chez Pierre was actually really lovely. I loved the character of going to see it there. Yeah, the setting was fantastic. We, I initially thought that we were sitting too close. We were less than 20 feet away from the stage. And I thought that that might be a little bit <laughs> yeah. aggressive. It might opera. be ugly. I mean, just knowing that how sort of, I mean, I've only seen opera before on the Jubilee stage. So seeing opera in a more intimate setting um, and Mercury Opera's mandate is sort of to take opera off that traditional stage and do it in unconventional spaces. They've done it in LRT stations. They've done it on like the backs of flatbed trucks, um, all sorts of different places. So what was interesting about this was that not only were we seeing it in kind of a very unique space, but um, the proximity to the performance kind of intimidated me at first but as soon yeah. as they got out there it was it was you know frankly so enjoyable um the acting was good their faces weren't ugly or quivering you know totally like they actually looked like real people singing the you know the lines the <laughs> the um the italian subtitles didn't work for the first little bit but <laughs> but but it was when they do this big like wonderful brindisi the drinking song right can you tell us a little bit about um sort of the the format of the opera and how verdi's operas maybe differ from some of the others of his period Right. So on the podcast a few weeks ago, we reviewed Gilbert and Sullivan's um, HMS Pinafore. And by contrast, it, uh, the La Traviata is very much about the stars of the show. And it tries to feature the stars and we show off the, the virtuosic aspects of their voices. And so early on in the show, um, Violetta, the star of the show, has these incredible arias where she has to sing and go, ah, 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 ah. Oh my God. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, I just did that to you. No, but it was good. It's good. It's like this amazing technical feat of the voice. Like you, you can tell, even not knowing anything about vocal training, opera, anything like that, I could tell that, like, you know, there's a lot of control that has to go into what she's doing in those in those solos. It's incredible and we we had a Fonda and I had a bite together before we went to the opera and I was like, "Ooh, I'm a little worried like if 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 the soprano can't sing, this night's going to be horrible." And that's not a feeling you'd have going into a Gilbert and Sullivan show, but we got in there and she showed her chops in the first 10 seconds and you're like, "Oh yeah, we are going to enjoy this oh, evening. It's going to be good. It's going to be great." And you're going to cry when she dies cuz she dies, everyone, she dies. Yeah, not not, not, a, big not a big surprise. Sorry, fucking <laughs> and so another another uh, big aspect of Verdi is that he does these beautiful baritone and soprano duets. And so classically in opera, the, the soprano and the tenor are usually the pair that are put together and they have great duets because they're usually lovers. But Verdi is unique um, because he puts together baritones, which is a very low male voice, and soprano, which is a very high female voice. 
and he creates these beautiful scenes between usually father figures and daughter figures and and they have this moment of reconciliation and enlightenment and this is uh, no exception to La Traviata and so um, we saw a beautiful scene between between her lover's father and, and Violetta. Yeah, in the, yeah, in the case of uh, this opera, Alfredo's father and Violetta did just... It was amazing, but I do want to point out one of the great feats um, that this company pulled off. Um, the gentleman playing Alfredo's father was obviously, um, you know... He had a cold. Yeah, he had a cold. He had, he, you know, he had something going on. There was, you know, the the actor playing the maid brought on a little bit of water. It was just like, <laughs> is he going to make it through this scene? Because it's quite a long scene um, between the two of them. And then I just I so appreciated this sort of problem-solving feat that they did for the next scene that he was supposed to be in. They had the... Um, the stand-in... The, uh, the, the man playing the baron. Yeah, the stand-in baritone, really. Um, come in and sing from the side while um, the the actor playing that night uh, was, you know, lip, lip-syncing, essentially. Um, and no, normally lip-syncing is seen like as an evil, terrible thing, but at the same time, you're just like, actually, no, there is someone live here doing it. You can see what's happening. You know why it's happening. Yeah. Um, it wasn't... It wasn't a bad thing, but I just actually appreciated that they they went in and tried to solve it like that because I imagine that it could be quite damaging to a voice to sing when you're ill. Um, and damaging to an audience. Uh, yes, also that. <laughs> um, oh. and, and, and frankly, you know, I mean, even Violetta, in that scene, the you know, he they're supposed to be quite close. They're supposed to be showing that they're making a bond between each other. Um, and you're just kind of like, Oh my God, she's going to get so damn sick. If she goes <laughs> close to him, <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> You've got two more weeks of show to go. It's true. <laughs> anyway. So watching the show tonight was so fun. And like, so we're in this sort of small room. That's like just, you know, 30% bigger than somebody's living room. And, and you feel the audience and everybody's talking to each other and in the intermissions. It was, super fun and the bar is like you know my elbow away which was super convenient it was um yeah yeah. but then anyway so I was reviewing some of my my uh my details about opera this afternoon and I was reminded that back in 1815 opera there was something called a a clack and that that uh, composers would hire uh to bring in um to operas that they either wanted to succeed or fail and it was a group of people that they would hire to either applaud or boo the show. And uh, so, you know, in today is, today's, today's world of, like, fake news and Twitter and blah, 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 it just reminded me that, like, you know, this is not a new thing. So people would come in and they would either boo the show to, to bring it down or they would applaud the show. And sometimes they would applaud the show when they were worried that the diva the main soprano wouldn't be able to hit the notes that she'd been um, <laughs> that she'd been like contracted to hit and so oh, no. they would contract the 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 audience to like start applauding before she hit the final high note and 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 you know carry the show off and so it's such an interesting point tonight our diva like hit all the notes she was phenomenal oh yeah so phenomenal i mean they're playing there's interchangeable uh there there, there's a number of actors who are playing uh violetta over the weekend but um we saw the performance on march 1st um actor from calgary and it was it was just fantastic apparently the company's been plagued with sickness and the flu and (laughs) all that kind of stuff so um i feel that we 
I, I don't know if we lucked out. I don't know if the rest of the run will be like this, but I think that um, for it being the opening, it was a pretty good indication of what audiences can expect. And I was absolutely pleasantly surprised by Mercury Opera. I was, you know, I, like you say, I was a little bit kind of uh, opera in a, in a bar, you know, is this... You think about opera and the budget and the caliber that you're sort of expecting, and it really, um, it, it, it kind of blew me away. There was an eight-piece live orchestra. Um, you know, the stage itself was only, I'd say, like 12 feet by 12 feet, um, and they did the entire opera on it. <laughs> it had that kind of classic, like, checkerboard, old bar style <laughs> look to it, um, tile to it. Totally. Yeah. I felt like I was walking into the first scene of Cabaret, if you've ever seen that movie, but like in the best, most pleasant way. And yeah, the eight piece orchestra totally did their job. And you know what? I would absolutely recommend sidling up to this opera, get a glass of wine and have a great evening. Yeah. And I also, I, the producer Darsha Parada also informed everyone that Mercury Opera is also producing a version of Carmen or co-producing a version of Carmen, um, that will be happening in the Badlands Amphitheater this August. So now that I've seen this and, um, how I just thoroughly enjoyed this, I am now have to go take a road trip. Road trip. Road trip. Badlands road trip in August. Yay. <laughs> Woo. Um, so, yeah. Any any parting thoughts there, Colleen? Like, I think we, we, we covered where La Traviata sort of stands in the in the scape, in, in the scope of opera. Um, this production was super great. I believe it will be super great. I should point out that Mercury uh, Opera is also doing a series of family-friendly presentations of La Traviata at, um, uh, it's not the church on 95th, it is the, um, Studio 96, um, oh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a, it's a converted church, it's like a cool place in the Boyle Macaulay district. And uh, Edmonton's, uh, the Edmonton Opera is doing La Traviata next season. So I would encourage you to come and see this production and then go see Edmonton Opera's production next year. And then you can compare and contrast. Yeah, actually, that'd be kind of fun. I have a feeling I'm going to I'm not going to like the the big stage as much. This was so intimate. It it's just really going to be a different thing. Yeah, it'll be a different thing. If it, 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 it did feel pretty special. And, yeah, and the soprano just, like, freaking rocked. <laughs> she really did. Okay. She And the costume, it was good. Yeah, the costumes were awesome. Yeah. yeah they did all kind of, like, 1920s Okay, I feel like we're fangirling. Yeah, well, it's, well, you know, it's okay to like stuff. What a take. Yeah, it was really fun. So um, La Traviata also runs this coming weekend, March 8th to 10th uh, at Le, at Chez Pierre. And if you go to Mercury Opera's website, you can also find the schedule for their running family-friendly versions of the show oh, Okay, great. <laughs> at Studio 96, that, uh, that fantastic converted church venue. Um, cool. Yeah. So yeah, um, also, it's, uh, it's also time now for another ad. Cool. This month, Edmonton Community Foundation is celebrating International Women's Day in a number of ways. Their quarterly magazine, Legacy in Action, and the March episode of the Well-Endowed podcast focus on Judy Lynn Archer, CEO of Women Building Futures. And their Vital Signs report this month also focuses on key issues facing women in Edmonton, like the wage gap and growth rate of sexual assault. 
There's a ton of interesting information in there, and you can find all of these things at ecfoundation.org. And you can also find a copy of Legacy in Action in this month's Avenue Magazine. Cool. Beep. All right. Last up. Last up. We went to see uh, Blood of Our Soil uh, by Paretic Productions, uh, a theater piece uh, that, uh, that was at the Arts Barns. Yeah, it was, well, walking into the space, what a great set. It's all built with pallets, and it looks like kind of like a small village almost. Sure, yeah, which is which is pertinent, as it's sort of about uh, heritage and, and contemporary Ukraine, in that the, the story of the, the play sort of traces the, the playwright uh, and, and one of the performers, uh, her, her family history, her connection with her, her baba, and her going home to you, going home to Ukraine because her baba never got to go back after after she left. Mm-hmm. So part of it is is sort of reconciling. The first half, I would say, is reconciling her image of her her baba and sort of the loving uh, grandmotherly uh, relationship she had with her, uh, as well as the, the some of the trials and sort of harrowing situations her her baba faced, uh, leaving Ukraine and while well, in Ukraine during the war. And then, and then the second half sort of focused on her trip and looked at sort of the contemporary uh, side of that conflict and, and what's happening over there right now and some of the people she met and, and spoke to about, about their, own, their own state of living. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, get, I pointed out the design first because it was one of the sort of the strongest parts of the show, I felt. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual visual, um, because they, they had uh, windows and also a, a bunch of tapestries and, and uh, kind of you know traditional Ukrainian um, cloths. Sure, uh, embroidery yeah. and things that they were projecting um, and they were projecting things uh, scenes of not only modern Ukraine but also of you know Baba's garden the periwinkle flowers mm-hmm. in the garden and things like that so it really rounded out the um, the space because they cover a lot of ground really in the show mm-hmm. um, and there so in the first half Leanna McCook she plays uh, she's the playwright also the um uh, narrator for the show, so she takes us through everything. It's a very personal story, mm-hmm. um, and she's also in the first half. The rest of the cast is um, sort of a movement chorus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I think um, I was a little little cluttery at times. I think um, because the story was this very their personal connection. A lot of the movement they were doing was sort of abstract or or uh, representing an idea or maybe a moment. Um, and yeah, sometimes I found uh, it sort of drew away from just the storytelling of of what this uh, this this narrative was and and what this relationship with with Baba was. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if we we gained much from from having that outside of having sort of four very capable actors on stage doing that uh, those roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um, the dramaturgy in this was done by Matthew McKenzie, who also did Bears and. You know, you could really see kind of a um, like a structural and narrative similarity in yeah, the way parallel. in in what they were trying to do with this chorus of movers. Um, I think, you know, there were in bears. Of course, they added a lot of humor and lightness to a fairly heavy topic, um, and in this one. There, there wasn't a lot of humor except for some uh, some moments where uh, Leanna's Baba makes a really mean remark about her getting fat. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, Which but, is also her Baba's way of deflecting a conversation. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And um, I'll tell you, many Babas do that. <laughs> right. Um, those of us with Babas kind of feel that feel that um, sure. judgment sometimes. <laughs> sure. But I uh, I found the the second half was uh, a lot stronger because we sort of got into contemporary Ukraine and. Uh, and so some of the issues therein, and the the chorus, uh, the movement chorus became other performers, uh, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the 
the strength in the piece was there, sort of in their stories and and this sort of terrible limbo that a lot of them are stuck in in this world right now um, with this war that's going on. Yeah, and these other characters that really start emerging. I think mm-hmm. maybe what I was... W- was hoping for it in seeing the other bodies on stage is that it, there would be some connection to the characters in the second half. I didn't really feel that there was, but um, when the characters did start emerging, they were all really strong. Um, I wanted to point out Julia Guy's performance as Yelena. Um, she's playing a, a young mom who's running a hostel that Leanna finds and start, and stays at. And um, yeah, just her stories, Yelena's stories about um, trying to protect her young daughter from what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the shelling in their village and things like that. Um, that was a, yeah, just a, starting to get those monologues and things coming out was really illustrative of the... Um, of what's happening. It, what was interesting too is that there's Liana keeps asking this question: Is this war even happening? Mm-hmm. You know, you you know that these people have had horrible things happen to them. There's two young soldiers played by um, Oscar Dirks and Maxwell LeBeouf, and um, and they you know they're talking about what they've experienced too. But at the same time, there's just this kind of like doubt about what is really going on. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, and then, and then there's also these these two sisters uh, who who live in this house that has sort of been in an area of conflict where the fighting passed through, and there's you know an unexploded shell that they have. There's bullet holes in the fencing, um, things like that. It's yeah, those those little details and the fact that like where do the they can't leave? They're still here, um, but there's there's nowhere to go. They can't run from this in the way that uh, sometimes sort of the the Leanna's character, Leanna. Um, who's yeah, sort of playing herself as she's experiencing these things, uh, is sort of thinking about you know those those things that we would think about of like where would you go? Why would you why would you stay if this was if this was the case? But the answer is sort of that like an understanding shrug of like where would we go? Mm-hmm. Who who will will take us in? Like what what this is the world here. This is what this is. Yeah, and I mean uh, you know starting from her Baba's story um, about coming to Canada. Uh, it, and you know the the amount of times that that this shit has happened to Ukraine mm-hmm. in over you know hundreds of years is it's it's awful. It's you know, but the and we don't I think hear about it as much as we do other certain other conflicts. You know, like the 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 Stalin's famine was really not talked about very much until much later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one of the lines that uh, in the second half keeps coming up is people just like the Ukrainians just fighting for their dignity, their basic human dignity as mm. as the thing they want and are, are constantly denied by this conflict in this world. Yeah, and that's and that's what they wanted to emphasize. You know, the soldiers talk about Maidan, the Euro Maidan, the, the big sort of, um, you know, rally in the square. And that was uh, a lot of people in the West kind of just didn't know what was going on. They're like, what's happening? You know, and then there's, you know, the story about the the brother that did end up getting killed on Maidan. So, um, yeah, it was a, you know, it was it was a pretty powerful story. I think it took its time quite a bit. Mm -hmm, Uh, I can see it as a a hot 90 minutes (laughs) rather than a full two act. Yeah. But um, also just a, a, a really personal um 
a, a very affecting personal story. I think that we have a lot of people in Alberta with East European heritage, and there's this great moment uh, in the beginning of the second half where she, Leanna gets to Ukraine and she says, God, you know, they're driving in these back roads to these villages. It looks like Alberta. And it does. That part of the world does look like Alberta. Our landscape and our vegetation is really similar. Climate is similar. So, um, and the big sky, right? Like, I think mm -hmm. that, you know, maybe when, when all the Ukrainians first came here, that was like, oh, it looks like home. Great. Right. <laughs> cool. um, so, yeah, like there's, uh, you know, and you could tell that there were a lot of people with babas in the audience who, mm -hmm. who got who got babas uh, sort of like harsh harsh love sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there would be times when uh, Leanna would deliver a line in in Ukrainian, uh, you know, that would get a laugh before she gave the English translation. So, mm -hmm. yeah, definitely a show that uh, has reached out to that community and has connected with that community in a, in a major way. Yeah, it's a it's a, sort of being co-presented with St. Saint, Saint John's Institute and the Shevchenko Foundation. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely no shortage of Ukrainians and uh, uh, East Europeans here who will, who will get something out of that. And I think especially for people who might be first or second generation Canadians, uh, knowing where their grandparents came from and stuff. I'm not sure if it's a common in many East European families, but my Bao and Guido never really talked about this sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and so, you know, you kind of like appreciate being able to see, uh, you know, uh, someone who's gone back and, 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 and seen those spaces. Mm -hmm. Great. So that was Blood of Our Soil. Mm -hmm. It runs till March 9th at the Arts Barns. Um, and yeah, if you, you should go check it out. Bring your Baba. Yeah. Now... <laughs> Some listings, Fonda. Yeah, so uh, March, International Women's Day, month of celebration. Right. Uh, the Romeo Initiative is on now. It's running until March 11th as part of the Skirts of Fire Festival, uh, which runs March 8th to 11th in Alberta Avenue. All of those events are by donation. Right. Mamma Mia is still playing at the Citadel until March 18th. So if you want to get your ABBA on, you still have the chance to do it live. <laughs> and also around 10 o'clock, avoid the Citadel parking lot. At Very all busy. <laughs> um, outside Mullingar is a John Patrick Shanley play running with Shadow Theater March 6th to 25th. Mm -hmm. Also uh, opening uh, at the at Citadel this week, uh, Children of God, uh, a musical about residential schools, uh, March 7th to 24th, uh, has been touring around, uh, should be really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, also, Do This in Memory of Me, a co-production between Northern Light Theatre and Luni Theatre. Uh, it's alternating performances in French and English. Be sometime between March 13th and 25th. Um, look at the schedule really carefully so that you know you're seeing either the French or the English. Or go on a day you, where the language is not the one you speak and see what reads. See how theater works I without... I think you should see it twice. Yeah. It would be fun. Anyway, so uh, next episode, we're, we've got something pretty, pretty special. There's some special guests that we're going to talk to about uh, the upcoming presentation of Betroffenheit. So stay tuned for that. Yeah, and thanks for listening, everyone. And go see some stuff that's happening because a lot of stuff's happening. Indeed. Okay, bye. Bye. I Don't Get It is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the CKUA radio app. I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta, in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli, and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blinov. Sit here thinking, I love you.